From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. Sitting across from me, after way too long a time, is our old friend David Oyelowo, who is starring, after being here last, was starring and directing a film. He is starring in the series Lawmen Bass Reeves on Paramount+. Plus. First of all, it seems like the most physically demanding thing you've ever done. So often I'm attracted by, to your work because these characters display a sense of either awe or wonder, hmm. and we get both of that from him, just sort of wonder at the world, the possibilities they're opening up for him, mm. and awe over what he's forced to see and endure. Mm. Yeah. There were so many things about this that were, were challenging, but you're not wrong about the, the physical component. And I knew that, and I wanted that. You know, anyone who reads accounts of, of Bass Reeves, he's there is the legend and then there's the man. And you're obviously, the truth lies somewhere in between. And what comes up again and again is his physical strength, is his prowess on a horse, is his ability with a gun. And he seemed to have those things, but not wield those things. Just by virtue of them being present, people found themselves essentially turning themselves in because of the reputation of the man. And so if you're going to even project those things, it needs to be in your body. And so, therefore, it was over a year of training with horse riding. And so um, it was that kind of physical it, preparation it, it, for It us. had to be because he... I remember seeing Dances with Wolves when I was a lot younger and seeing Kevin Costner on that horse and just thinking, oh, my gosh, I 100% buy this character, not even the actor. I just buy that character. I remember seeing My Left Foot with Daniel Day-Lewis and and what he does in that film. And, and so very early on, even before I was really thinking about becoming an actor, it became apparent to me that the cost, if you are seeking to be a truth teller, is to as much as possible get not only within the mental headspace, but in the physical space and capacity of that character. And so, you know, for me to be able to to do those things and to be able to do those things without it constantly cutting away from me because there's a stunt performer doing it, that was very important for me. But you are not wrong. It, it's definitely the most physically demanding thing I've ever done. It's interesting because for me, it's just watching the way he sits. There's a kind of a constant vigilance in it. Mm. And we see that from the very first scene where he's ramrod straight, mm. but he's not rigid. Mm. That, that need that that environment demanded of him that he was able to meet. Yeah. He, he is constantly ready. He's incredibly observant and astoundingly bright. And if you read Art T. Burton's book, uh, Black Gun, Silver Star, there are a lot of court accounts where he is giving testimony. And you can tell that this is a man who remembers everything. He observes everything. He, he couldn't read. And so what he used to do is he would have his wife read him his writs, and she would only have to read it once, maybe twice, and he would have it memorized. And that's how bright he was. And someone who has that kind of acumen, someone who has that level of intelligence is someone who is incredibly observant. They, they take in more than they give away. 
and and that was you know in my opinion his his superpower and that's what i wanted to have in my body in these moments if you're coming out of enslavement and you have lived with native americans for a substantial amount of time you've learned tracking skills you've learned all of these skills that go on to be attributable to your ability as a lawman you are in a world where you are constantly undermined constantly second guessed constantly being told you are lesser than but you have been authorized and tasked with bringing some of those very same people to justice you are having to compute so many things in any given moment and so that is something that he just had to have in his disposition at every turn it's the treatment we're talking to our old friend who i get to see physically now for and it's been too long david yellow he's starring in Lawman Bass for use on Paramount Plus. You can also hear this show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. And we should say for those who don't know that Bass Reeves is a legendary, I shouldn't say legendary, an epic figure in the American West. Hmm. And part of the astonishing racism institutionally, even in journal accounts, of the way African Americans, black people, interacted with the West. There's so much to go into here, as I'm sure you know. I mean, the, the fact that the word cowboy was used as an epithet. If you were a white person, you were a mm. cowpuncher. Mm. If you were a black man, you were a cowboy. Right. And one of the first pieces of film <laughs> is of a black man on a horse. Mm. It was shown in movie theaters. Mm. So that when the stories of the West were told in the studio system, that black people were ignored, it was just both astonishing and un- un- unfortunately expected, isn't it? Well, I'm so glad you make the distinction between legend, him being legendary, and him being an epic figure. Because I think when we say legendary, that's what he should be. And and, and during the, his time, he was legendary. Exactly. But But for someone of that nature to fall out of history speaks to... An insidious, intentional desire. Well, he's not for, like, to, deleted. To, yeah, yeah, completely <laughs> expunged. So he should be legendary. He should be Wyatt, uh, Billy the Kid. He should be amongst those Western figures. But he is, as you say, an epic figure. Within a cursory Google search, you feel the epicness of his journey, of his story, of his life. And th- that's what brought me to the obsessive need to to tell this story because something wrong had happened to this guy. I had grown up as a kid playing, as I, I now know better than to call it cowboys and Indians, but that's what we called it back in the day uh, when we were we playing those games. And I wanted to be that cowboy. Uh, that vision, that image of me on that white horse that is now on billboards around the world is something I conjured and I manifested and I saw as a kid. And, you know, that's one of the benefits of being a producer is you can say, I want that image. We're doing Did that. You actually, were you actually that deliberate about and saying you want this? That, oh, abs- that had to be that? Absolutely. You know, within the course of all the time where I was learning to ride, I tangentially was saying, you know, th- there isn't a moment in the script where I need to rear a horse, but I want to learn to rear a horse because I know that image has to exist for me. That's a gift to my six-year-old self because I didn't know that I wanted that image. I accepted that that image exists and it was aspirational for me, but I never really even knew that I needed that to be someone with my color skin. 
And so it wasn't until later on when I would no longer talk about cowboys and Indians when I sort of fell out of love with Westerns because I became aware that something intentional was going on with regards to the erasure of, you know, one in four, one in three uh, uh, cowboys were black. And, and so there's something very, like I say, intentional in taking that out. And so this is definitely a full, a full circle for me to get to the point whereby, for my kids, that erasure is no longer their reality. We never saw black people on horses in the old westerns because what that connotes is agency. Exactly. If you go on the horse, you can go in any direction you want to. And the message those movies wanted to offer was that black people didn't want to leave. And even though Pence is something like, I remember, and I've even mentioned this to him, Paul Thomas Anderson talking about having the character Buck Swope in Boogie Nights in those outfits because he thought the idea of a black cowboy was absurd. Mm. And this is the extent to which movies have educated people mm. about what history is. Yeah. That somebody like Paul Thomas Anderson can say that mm. and for the most part not have anybody respond to it. But yeah, they, they just kind of go along with it saying it is absurd. The visual of a black man on a horse, mm. a black man controlling his weapons. Mm. But also, there's this constant sense of him being fighting several different forces yeah. on uh, within and without. I mm. mean, that's why I use the word epic for this because first of all, he's an epic figure. Yeah. This is also an epic portrayal, I think. Well, thank you for saying that. And, you know, we are all products of our environment. So the the reality is when you don't see those images, the idea that a black cowboy is absurd is something that you kind of internalize because you yourself haven't seen it. This is why education is so key. And whether we like it or not, so much of how we interact with history is through movies is, of course, through literature, is through TV shows. Because now you've seen it, it gives you that sense of, oh, that exists. Is there more of that? Or there is that. And so therefore, you know, your curiosity is piqued as opposed to it just being an acceptance. The fact of the matter is, there is a reason why horses and the majesty of them, whether it be wild or tamed, is so pervasive in art, in culture, in literature. There is something so majestic about the horse. I would categorize the same thing with the lion. These are symbolic animals that are aspirational and inspirational. The horse is probably the American version of the lion. 100%. And unlike the lion, this is a majestic animal that can be tamed, that can be ridden, that can be a companion. And that elevates the person who is riding that incredible animal. And so there is a reason why that image and that imagery has been kept from us when it comes to marginalized people. And that's why it, for me, it needed to not only be a horse, but it needed to be a white horse, or as they say, a gray, you know, because the, the white horse, the shining armor, all of the symbolism, for me, that's what I'm drawn to. I've, I've often said I feel called to contextualize Black life on planet Earth. And for me, that is primarily tied to aspirational and inspirational depictions of 
our people, because that is the element that has been marginalized. I hope that my children, their children, will have the luxury to play anything and everything. But for me, we're not there yet. Like, we need to do so much work to bring balance to the caricatures, the stereotypes, the the diminished versions of ourselves in order to be able to just have the level playing field where I can go and do whatever I want, whenever I want. All the stuff you're saying aside, you you so often are attracted to playing characters with a mission. Mm-hmm. When we meet Bass, that mission is in code for him, but we we see it there mm. and we see it rising in him. And I was wondering if if you felt that that was something that you connect connected with in a character, that's something you could bring to him that sense of being having a, a greater calling. We talked about this before. Mm. You you being attracted to, to those kinds of people. What I love about Bass Reeves is that there are these concentric circles that continue to widen from who he is as a man. What you see in the first episode where he is Really, of course, he's enslaved. So being mistreated is par for the course. But, but also conscripted into the armor into which he's been in, conscripted. Yeah. It's one thing to read about that, or to yeah. say, but to see it. I know. It's, it's a scene that really basically says to me all the contradictions of America. Mm. And, and that's what the Reconstruction era, to me, is. I, I'm still confused as to why it is not as mind for cinematic and televisual treatment. I bet you know. I do know. <laughs> I do know. But it, but it makes no sense because, you know, drama is conflict. And so to to have a period that is so steeped in conflict, so steeped in contradiction, and not sit there, park there for a moment to really unpack that doesn't make sense to me. But that was the opportunity that not only the character, but that period in time presented. Because Bass Reeves and what he went on to do doesn't exist outside of the Reconstruction era. Like Judge Isaac Parker is not deploying Black people outside of this 12-year window between the Civil War and Jim Crow. Employing Black people to enforce the law. Right. (laughs) Exactly. In such close proximity to being enslaved, can you imagine the dizzying effect, not only on the people doing the arresting, but the Those white white people being arrested <laughs> by, by someone who was literally a slave within the last decade, and the contradictions, the feelings that that all is engendering in both people, by the way. But... You know, one of the miracles to me of the African-American experience in this country is the centuries of slavery that Black people were subjected to, the Civil War being fought, the slaves, as they were called, being freed, and that not immediately being parlayed into vengeful, burn-the-whole-thing-down mindset. You know, these are people who, who wanted like Bass Reeves, to be civil and contributive to society. You had people, Black people becoming politicians, Black people in service industries that were really about building the community. Um, and I attribute a lot of that to their faith and, and a moral compass that belies what also, they had just uh, dealt so, with. So many of these people coming from societies that had traditions of law enforcement right. and administration of justice. Right. I mean, that, you know, that they weren't the savages as they were painted to be exactly. is a reason that this country still exists. Right. Apparently, we have nothing to talk about with our old friend David Oyelowo. He's starring <laughs> in Lawman Bass Reeves on Paramount+. Plus. We're going to take a break and talk about nothing more when we come back. Stay with us. <laughs> 
He's still here. It's the treatment. My our old friend David Oyelowo. He's starring in Lawman Bass Reeves on Paramount Plus. You can also hear the show at KCRW.com slash the treatment. How'd this come to you? Because you're as you mentioned in the first half, one of the producers. Yes, it came to me through a producer called David Permit in 2014. And that was my first uh, knowledge, interaction, meeting up with of Bass Reeves as a historical character. But very quickly after he approached me, as I said before, I, I just simply couldn't understand within this beloved genre that is the Western, why? There hadn't been a myriad, and really? of course, you really couldn't understand. Let me explain a few things to you. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I was just coming off of Selma and seven years of trying to get that made. So, on the one hand, you know, but honestly, there are certain things that are just so patently obvious to you that you just feel like, is am I crazy? And this stuff is crazy making because what. What happens, it happened with Selma, it happens with this, where the excuses, the wrapping within which these stories, these characters are denied their platform are pretty convincing. Like, people have really done a good job. And that's why, 50 years after Dr. King had passed away, we still hadn't had a narrative centering the only American, not African-American, American to have a holiday named after them in the 20th century. This is a hundred, over 150 years. We have had the whole advent of cinema and television as an opportunity to tell this story, and no one has taken it up. Racism within our industry, within uh, the world, uh, generally speaking, the awfulness about it is that we are all robbed by this. You know, the 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 really wonderful thing about Lawman Bass Reeves now being out there, it's not just ba- Black people who are loving not only the show, but the representation that the show brings. It's white people, Black people, everyone in between, because it contextualizes this country. It, it gives breadth to something they already loved in terms of the Western. For pe- and I always wanted to make an anti-Western. What I mean by that is a Western for people who don't like Westerns. And so that's why Chad Feehan and I, our showrunner and creator, we really wanted to center the show around a family and around the work-life balance relatable and complex reality that a lot of us have in relation to, if I have to hit the road for a while, that puts pressure on my family, and I'm constantly trying to get back to that. The third episode really deals with all that sort of stuff. But you know what? It's it's interesting what what you're saying to me is that finally people are responding to this because in addition to all the things we're talking about, all those sort of layers of sort of infrastructure about inertia and intolerance. Mm. This is a great story. So often you, you play these characters so we can see their division. Mm. I mean, we can see, you talk about family. You can see that, and that, I'm thinking about that great scene where Dr. King is at home uh, and they're washing dishes, his domestic life. That's it. And what that means to leave that behind, to go out and, and to have to, again, down the, the, the battlements for mission. Yeah. And that's the same thing in a lot of cases with this, but all these astonishing Olympian <laughs> contradictions, in fact, are embodied in, in almost every scene of this. And that's why I was talking about the demands of the show, because mm. just in an emotional turn, not to mention physical, just watching him stand straight all the time, but 
the head is kind of always moving around so you won't miss anything. Well, that's to do with relatability. And that, to me, is why, even though you and I both know why these characters have not had their day up until recently, what we also know is that they are human beings. There is specificity to the challenges they're going through, but there is great relatability. What you just said there about that scene with Dr. King, where he's having to have a very difficult conversation with his wife. Anyone and everyone who's ever been in a marriage or any kind of relationship will be able to relate to that. You know, this man who has been marginalized and has a moment where he is empowered and has real conflict in his soul. Am I being raised to this position against my people, for my people? Is this in line with my faith? Is this against my faith? Is my deployment out on the road for several days at a time where I may not make it back because of how dangerous it is? Is this for my wife or is it a challenge for my wife and my children? These are all contradictions that we carry in our day-to-day lives. Maybe not to that epic size and quality, but that's what we're being robbed of when we are not allowing these characters to have their day. Because I'm always looking for how we can see stories where we are more alike than we are different along racial lines, along cultural lines, political lines, ideological lines, because that to me is where empathy is built. And I truly believe that's what's insidious about keeping these characters away from a global audience is that it actually erodes our chance at empathy, which at the end of the day is the thing that is going to keep this thing called humanity going in a good direction. Probably no better time to talk about erosion of empathy than the present where we are now. It's the treatment. Our old friend David Oyelowo is sitting across from me. He's starring in Lawman Bass Reeves on Paramount+. Plus. You can also have the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. So you get this material in, in 2014, and how many sort of iterations do you guys, were you and David trying to make it as a as a feature film at one point? Is that what you would yeah, want to do? Yeah, a feature film, a series. Basically, just let's let's just give this guy his day. Like, what 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 version of the story do you guys want? We went out in 2015. And what, are we getting the kind of response of well? Westerns are dying and we don't know. Is it all the things that we expected this to is, hear? This is how ridiculous it was. We went out in 2015 to every studio, every cable. Streaming didn't even exist back then. This tells you how long <laughs> we've, we've, we've been trying to get this done. And, um, and the first time we went out, they said, uh, no, we're not doing this because no one's doing Westerns. So basically, Westerns had had their day. We went out again in 2017. And I kid you not... Most of them said, ah, we're not doing this because everyone's doing Westerns. And you just go, well, okay, now you're just you're just messing with me. I mean, what on earth are you talking about? And that is, I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm not, that is literally what happened. And then you go, oh, okay, I, I, I see what's going on here. The, the reality is it, it wasn't until Paramount and Taylor Sheridan and the cultural moment that was Yellowstone came along to reinvigorate this beloved genre and brought along an audience that clearly uh, were not of the same mindset as the gatekeepers in Hollywood. And that's what created the atmosphere whereby increasingly Bass Reeves as a, as a reality, as a notion, became more of a reality. The, the murder of George Floyd of course, is a factor. The Black Lives Matter movement, of course, is a factor. We went through this moment in 2020 
and beyond uh, of a kind of cultural racial reckoning of what are we doing here? You know, that moment in which the world had to sit there time and again, watch this man being murdered over the course of eight to nine minutes and for black people to now be able to say, this isn't new. This isn't new, guys. Just because you are benched and at home and having to watch it time and again because of COVID doesn't mean this is something new. And enough people paid attention and for a time, because believe me when I say the pendulum has begun to swing the other way, for a time, there was enough focus where I, I, I truly believe it gave us a window whereby a story like Bass Reeves became prioritous and, and, and we could ride that wave into this being made. I would say this too about Waterman, which I watched again to get ready for this. Hmm. In fact, I had a little David Yellowwood Film Festival in my house. <laughs> Thank you. Is that there is an eagerness in you in performance that I can see pop up from time to time. I can see you light up that thing you're talking about. Yeah. The six-year-old you. Yeah. When I see that, I feel the electricity in the air. And it's a constant mm. in this show. Oh. I mean, that wariness I'm talking about, but also that elation, mm. that physical elation and getting to do these sorts of things in the most dire situations. Mm. Seeing this guy test himself and come through it. Mm. And I mean, there is that aspect of this that's not just action hero stuff, mm. but getting through it. And uh, there is that kind of satisfaction that he takes that I can also feel in you as an actor mm. and getting to accomplish this stuff and getting to accomplish it on this scale. As all the complications we're talking about that exist in this material, there are all these kinds of uh, ripples of reward that I see in you that I, I feel as an audience member. Oh, well, listen, that, that heartens me so much because I am standing on the shoulders of, of giants. You know, Morgan Freeman tried to get this story told for 25 years or more that shouldn't be a thing like he he shouldn't struggle for that long to tell this story and so every frame every day that i got to to tell that story i was so cognizant of the depth of the blessing it is to me and hopefully to other people that this story is getting told because that man to my mind, is truly an aspirational figure. 32 years in law enforcement, an arrest record that is still un unparalleled. Un unsurpassed. Yes. 3,000 people he brought to justice. Someone who was so fastidious in his pursuit of justice that he arrested his own son who had committed a crime and a, a crime for which his son went away for a time but someone who also loved his family constantly found his way back to his family loved his wife before she eventually passed away so many of these things buck the tropes that are beset upon black people especially at that time the imagery that, that are beset upon black people. It's almost always brow-beaten brokenness is what you see of black people in that time. And we very consciously needed to see him enslaved at the beginning of episode one to contextualize it, but we were doing everything we could to get out of there as quickly as possible to show that that may have been his beginning, but that was not his end. And it certainly wasn't the, the basis on which his legend was built. And for black people, and I've heard this ad nauseum, 
We're tired of that imagery and it's wearing, it's traumatic. Trauma porn is, is, is what it is. And so this is to be an antidote to that. But to my point about streaming, the data doesn't lie. And that's why we, we now have the foundation and the platform to be able to go, no, 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 don't lie to us anymore. The audience is there. And thankfully, they're rewarding us certainly on this. Well, my guest who I hope doesn't make Black success anomalous is David Oyelowo. <laughs> His newest project is for Paramount Plus. It's Lawmen Vast Reasons. It's always a thrill to have you, David. Thank you so much. Ah, uh, such a joy. Thanks, Elvis. Actor David Oyelowo on contradictions in character and society in the world of Lawman Bass Reeves, now on Paramount+. Plus. Past episodes, including previous visits from David Oyelowo and Brian Helglin at the archives at kcrw.com slash the treatment. More to come. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. It's always good to have an old friend back to do the show. But let's just look at his career and talk about who he's directed. Uh, Chadwick Boseman, Nicole Bahari, Tom Hardy, Taron Edgerton, Heath Ledger. Those are just some of the people he's worked with in his career as a director. We were talking about the fact that Clint Eastwood's directed two of his screenplays, though he's won the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. In fact, I would love to talk to Brian Helglin about his new film, Finest Con, but we're out of time. Brian, thanks so much for being here, you and your crazy long career. So good to see you again. Yeah, you too, Elvis. We were talking before we got started, and you had told me that this script goes back for you over 30 years. And But for me, looking at so much of the stuff you've done, it's been a lot of the themes in this film have made their way through your other work, haven't they? Yeah, I think sort of two things. One, people that have to go back home for some reason or want to go back home for some reason. And I think that ties in also with identity and that you are, to a, a big extent, where you came from even if you're trying to change or you've chosen another direction in life. This thing that also I see in your movies a lot, there are two different movies. By the second half, we think we're getting one movie, and by the second half, it's another movie entirely. Uh, And this, for me, this is definitely a case. There's a story about family bonds, about two brothers getting back together again, about life on this fishing boat. And then in the second half of the movie, it becomes another film entirely. That happens with legend. That happens with yeah. <laughs> everything you've done as a writer-director. What is that for you where you have these sort of things that feel like they're two discrete movies, but knit together? I mean, first of all, I, I love genre. But genre just by itself is limiting, I think. And um, if you can combine it, I mean, I think Finest Kind is a, is a family drama 
hiding behind uh, a crime story a little bit, or a crime story hiding behind a family drama. But as far as crime goes, for example, it's a great crucible to put the drama into because it, it forces everybody to reveal themselves and make choices that they wouldn't normally make in a, in a more low-key drama. It's funny, we talk about this movie here, and at one point the character played by Jenna Ortega talks about what she wants versus what she is. And we think, well, now we're going to be done with the crime part of this now because she's saying she wants to get out, and she sort of sees a way out. But that never goes away, does it? That 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 crime is so close. It's around the corner for so, so many of the protagonists yeah. that you've written about, us, isn't it? And when they get into the jam they're in, it's a scene that happens off screen, but it's when they get into that jam, it's her knowledge of that and her her mother's knowledge of it that gives them an avenue to try to solve the predicament they're in. And it just, it obviously leads to more trouble than it solves. As a filmmaker, you work with so many actors on the rise. Talk to me about finding people because this has happened to you in every film you've made. The first thing is, is you need a casting director who's not just thinking about making the studio happy, but thinking about who is this talented person out there that no one knows about. And I've been lucky enough in the case of Heath Ledger, it was Francine Maisler, who's a fantastic casting director. And Heath was, you know, he was uh, he was coming because he was playing uh, Mel Gibson's son in The Patriot. But he hadn't started a movie. But I mean, he had never starred in a U.S. movie, and she's, she knew about him. Um, in the case of... Chad Bozeman, um, Vicki Thomas, who's an excellent casting director who did I worked with on 42 and, and on Finest Kind. Basically, she's, we, we were cast, casting Jackie Robinson, obviously, and she said to me, well, he's here. He's in the lobby, and you're going to have to see about 30 people. But And he was the second person I saw, and she said, but he's out in the lobby. And Chad came in and read, and he left, and I looked at her, and I said, well, let's, we found him. And she said, yeah, we still got to see 30 more people. <laughs> I think it's being open to, it's being, it's trying to ignore what the appetite of the people with the money who are paying for it, who have their legitimate concerns about selling tickets. It's putting that second and just trying to find the best person for the part. And w- once you do that, it's kind of takes care of itself, I think. I guess at this point, because we've been sort of talking around it, I'll ask you to tell the audience what Finest Kind is about. It's an ensemble, so it's about—it depends on who the character is that you're talking about, but it's about trying to find your place in the world and within that dealing with your relationship with your dad in this case, that half of the parentage, meaning that that you come from his world. A child comes from his parents' world in in a sense, and it's— about a one brother who's very eager to enter a, a world that's different from the we world. You say they're half-brothers. Yeah, they're half-brothers. And one brother, they grew up with different fathers. And one brother whose father is an attorney, he kind of wants to reject that world. He's oddly downwardly mobile, in a sense. And his brother, his half-brother, is not stuck in this world because he, he's great at what he does and he's Certainly, he rules that world in a way, but he's isolated himself and 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 is really a, just a solid loner. What he doesn't realize is how much he needs his brother, who he keeps rejecting and and trying to embrace and reject, and and then thrown into that are the fathers themselves, but also the character of Mabel, who Jenna plays, who's 
a little bit outside their world, because she's not from a fishing world, but she's from the same town that they're all from. And she is a, kind of an observer of all of them, but has her own aspirations to move on from her place in life. And um, she realizes that Charlie is doing the same thing, and maybe he knows he has some key to how to do this. Your movies seem to have kind of a narrative sprawl, but they really don't, because there's so much about ambition versus being rooted someplace. I yeah. mean, that's that's in everything you've written just about. Somebody who aspires to be better and to do something else versus somebody who can't. Again, that's sort of being limited right. and being stuck in the past. Not even and not even the present, but the past. I mean, that's you know, Ben Foster's world, the 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 older brother, yeah. he's He's mired in the past. Yeah. I mean, his world hasn't changed much at all, yeah. which is why you can make this movie over 30 years later, and that world hasn't, in a lot of ways, he's, uh, he runs a fishing boat. That world hasn't really changed substantially at all in 30 years, has it? Yeah, not a, not a bit, really. And every time, over the years, I tried several times to get the movie up and running. Did it get close at any point? Not really. Once about three or four years ago, but we just didn't have the money to— they. They wouldn't shoot in my hometown. They wanted to shoot in Nova Scotia because it was a lot cheaper. And I just said, I, well, I don't know what it's about if I shoot it in Nova Scotia. I, I have to shoot it where I'm from, in a sense. But every time it fell apart, or every time we tried again to get it going, I thought to myself, well, th there's nothing I have to rewrite because nothing's changed. So that was that was a, a bonus. The people listening, filmmakers are would say, well, God, you could get it made in Nova Scotia. Why wouldn't you just say make it there and say it could be New Bedford? Why why was why does that make such a difference? Yeah. And and the and the real tough thing of that moment was I had to I was the one that canceled my own film. That always has been uh someone else's privilege to do that. But in that case I was the one that had to walk away and say, I'm not I waited this long to do it. I'm not gonna do it. Plus every director has a film that they can never get made and they go to their grave never making it. So this was Finest Kind was mine, so I was I was not going to let anyone take that from me. But a movie can take you to someplace that you can't go in your own everyday life, and that could be outer space or the Arctic, but it could be a fishing town or the deck of a fishing boat. You're not going to ever be a commercial fisherman, but you can travel there. And place is therefore... Where you're from is very much part of who you are. I, well, I worked several times for Tony Scott, did a lot of almost things with him, and we were always meeting oddball people. We had a great meeting with uh, Sonny Barger once, the head of the Hells oh Angels. Oh, my gosh. That, uh, that I could make a movie about that. But anyways, but Tony would always say that I make movies about what people do for a living. That's all I do. Whether they're a guy running the trains, at MTA headquarters in Manhattan or their Navy pilots coming off the aircraft carrier. I make movies about what people do for a living. And the reason why is because you are what you do for, for Tony. And why he wanted to explore that. And he, therefore, he wanted to explore the minutia of, of that, see how everything worked. He called it um, process. We got to show the process. And uh, I very much try to do that in Finest Kind. So not only are they commercial fishermen, but you're going to we're going to make a documentary about how you be a commercial fisherman in a little sequence because I think it's fascinating to know what they do, A, and where they do it, which is the North Atlantic, you know, sometimes 100 miles offshore. But that's their playing field, and that's where they feel comfortable, and it's on land that they're screw-ups. 
as often as not, you're writing about people in small towns uh, where the sky seems to be much lower over their heads than everybody else's. I mean, I think about how small that world seemed in payback even. I mean, everybody's, in the films you directed, got in the order. The ceiling seems to get smaller and smaller as a, or shorter and shorter as the movie goes on. That sense of being, having the, the walls pressing up against you there's that sense in, in a small town of everyone looking at everyone else, making sure no one, what do the Australians call it, the tall poppy syndrome. It's, do you think you're better than us? That's a thing you'd hear all the time when you were a kid. If you, if you had some funny little idea for yourself, is like, oh, you think you're better than us. No, I don't think I'm better than you. I think I'm different than you. <laughs> I'm not judging you. You're judging me, but I'm not judging you. But I just know that what I want isn't here, but I don't know what I want, but I, I know it's not here. I'm not going to find it here. I was lucky I had that moment, but it's like, if you don't know what you want and you know you're not getting it where you are, it's, you got to move on. You got to find, you got to find a different place that maybe you can find it. It's the treatment. We're talking ambition with our old friend, Brian Helglin, whose new film, Again, taking only three decades to get made. It's finest kind. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. We're talking about all these things. What we should be talking about is, again, taking me back to where we started the conversation, is finding all these actors. And, you know, we see Ben Foster and Tommy Lee Jones and saying, you think, why haven't these guys worked together before? Because even though in in sort of affect and, and temperament they're different, they're still two very intense guys who lean in in a scene. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're talking, you gotta, our first thing I thought was, they, they, they should be, fa- oh, they are father and son. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but that, that seemed like such a natural. Yeah, and they bring it, those guys, you know, they, I mean, all my cast did, but they inhabit those characters. I wouldn't call it method, because they're too skilled to have to live it every minute, but there's a, an honesty to both of them, and then when they when they're in scenes together, it it kind of it's a force multiplier in, in a sense. And Tommy Lee is a legend, right? So he's he's not a movie star. He's like he's the guy on the twenty dollar bill when you see him. You know, it's it's a different level for whatever reason. Anytime he was working, everyone from the craft services to Ben were all trying to sit up a little straighter and make sure that. They kind of go unnoticed by him in a sense that you're doing your job so well that that uh, he doesn't know you're there in a, in, a, in a way. And he he worked only for a week, so we were all. It was always like Tommy Lee Jones week is coming, you know. Which is the best way to have him because he he really just wants to get down to business. What am I doing? Yeah. All right, coach. What am I doing? Yeah. Let's yeah. do this. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. his threshold for boredom is olympically low. Yeah. <laughs> Epically low. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Not to tell stories, but it was like I said, when I first met him, I was on the phone and I said, how do you like to work? And he said, well, you're the director. How do you like to work? And I said, I could tell you, but if it's diametrically opposed to how you like to work, we're going to have a problem, aren't we? And he said, we're going to have a big problem. And I said, okay, well, how do you like to work? And he said, I like everyone to know their lines. I like the first take to be perfect. I like the second take to be perfect. And if they're both perfect on the third take, uh, we can improvise. And I said, what if the improvisation on the third take is got something going for it, but we haven't got there yet? Can we do a fourth take? And there's a long pause. And I was like, oh boy, I think I'm going to yell that. And he went, yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that's how he was. He was like boom, bang, boom. And the cast all, you know, they were all professionals. So it's not like, it wasn't like, okay, the, the principal's here. We got to stop fooling around. But but that's what goes on in these films that you've made, though, though Brian, that there's such a, a wide range of, of ages and talents. And and that's the fun of it. It's like that sense of discovery of seeing somebody new, but then seeing Lolita Davidovich and Tim Daly and, yeah. and Tommy Lee and, and the way, the kind of ownership they have. And, and then having Ben, who is in his way as no-nonsense as Tommy is, but yeah. there is a vulnerability in him that Tommy would never show. Right. It, it's very good because it's also the message he tries to give his son at the end of the movie. Was He says, I spent my whole life trying not to need anyone. And then he says, don't you do that. That's the huge hole I dug for myself and the mistake I made. And I can see you repeating it, and I wish you wouldn't. And he appeals to Charlie, Toby Wallace in the film. He says, don't, don't let him do that. Because he knows Toby's the key to opening his life up for him is his brother. Sometimes who they are kind of feeds right into who they're playing. And I think that's part of the casting in a way, subliminally even, that you're like, that's Tommy Lee is that guy, you know, because he's Tommy Lee, not because he's going to change who he is to play the part. But there's so much of this in watching the film and watching Ben and Toby together and just sort of seeing that brother not wanting his brother to join, to be part of this world, but wanting his brother to be part of his life. I mean, there's so much about conflicting messages in right. your work, about you know, wanting to pull people closer, but not wanting them to be tainted by what you feel like is the worst part of you. I mean, there's something right. almost <laughs> kind of like Old Testament about that in these right. movies, isn't there? Yeah, I like, and the Old Testament's a good testament. It is, it is. And, the, and that, it feeds into the sea and the ocean and in the, what do they say in Moby Dick at the end, the, the, the waves that have been rolling for a million years keep rolling, you know. I think that's part of that world is the sea is, is kind of that Old Testament world that they're living on. Well, based on that shrug, I guess we should be finished, but we're out of time anyway. Our old friend Brian Huglin, who's been away too long, please make another movie and come back sooner. All right, I'll be, I'll be here in three to five years. <laughs> <Okay>. Hopefully <laughs> I will too. His new <laughs> film is pretty directed his finest kind. Brian, thanks again for doing this. Elvis, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Finest Kind is the new film from writer-director Brian Helglin. It's now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. With The Treat... Hua Xu, writer of the Pulitzer Prize-winning memoir, Stay True, on a musician whose jazzy expansive talent and worldview changed his life. My name's Hua Xu. This is The Treat. I first discovered uh, the music of Pharaoh Sanders in my late 20s. I used to go sort of in search of specific moods. Like if I was feeling down, I would go looking for records that would take me further down or in the opposite direction. But I would always browse, you know, judging things by their covers, looking up recommendations. But I was always 
really just shopping for different emotions, more so than I was like interested in, in genre per se. I always had heard the name Pharaoh Sanders, a great saxophonist, played with John Coltrane, up there with Albert Eiler, but uh, I had never really listened to his music. And I came across a $3 copy of his album, Jewels of Thought, at um, Amoeba Records in Berkeley. So I took it home, listened to it, and there's a song, Hum Allah. Um, it's, I think, about 20 minutes long, and it was instantly one of the most beautiful things I'd ever heard. really stormy and chaotic in moments. There were all these bells and instruments that I had never heard in, in jazz composition. Uh, Sanders himself, his saxophone, there's this sort of serrated quality to it. Like it, it, it can sound really violent and anarchic one moment and then like the most blissful thing ever in, in the next moment. It's an album and particularly a track that I just listened to obsessively for that week, but also for years to come. And I became a really big fan of, of his. And, and I think what I realized is that his music is able to sound very ecstatic and joyful but also a bit mournful and troubled at the same time. And his music, much like the writing of Maxine Hong Kingston, was important to me because it sort of showed me that we can hold these different emotions at the same time, right? That you can start a song out and it can be kind of dense and furious, anxious and chaotic, and there will be stretches of, of peace and joy and transcendence. And maybe it'll get chaotic again, but ultimately, these are the forces that shape us, and these are the forces that we have to contend with and reckon with. Yeah, Pharaoh Sanders, really uh, one of the kind of lodestars for how I see writing and music and, and art and the things that I seek out, but also just someone whose life and uh, sort of example is one that I've admired for quite a while. Saxophonist Farrell Sanders is the treat from New Yorker writer Hua Xiu. Previous treats including writer Sam Watson on musician Tom Waits at kcrw.com slash the treat. The music of life, from literal music to stories, film, art, and relationships, and the way it sings and evokes inspirations for creators of all types. That's the treatment. The show is produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. We had help this week from Anna Buss and Laura Kandarajian. To better days, everyone, I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. Thank you.
Mm-hmm.